This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 106 of Horsemanship Radio, brought to you by Omega Fields, the world's best omega-3 supplements for horses. Horsemanship Radio is a part of the family of the Horse Radio Network. And today, we have some really interesting people, not new to the horse industry, but really from different worlds in the horse industry. This is Debbie Lauks, and you're listening to the Horsemanship Radio. Thanks for joining us. Horsemanship Radio airs on the 1st and the 15th of the month, and I have my producer, Jen, with me today. Hi, Coach Jen. Greetings, Debbie. I've gotten to talk to you a lot this this uh, month because Glenn has yeah. gone off and is playing podcast pro at a conference, yes. so you've been helping out on the horses in the morning show. This is fun. Yeah, that was fun. I'm so such a newbie at it, but you know, I, I don't make any pretense that I I'm Glenn the Geek. You own it. That's what makes you awesome. Is you? Own oh, it. you're so sweet. No, Glenn the Geek will never be in my vernacular. But it was really fun. It was fun to join you and Jamie. I, I enjoyed that so much, and it's right here on Flagstaff Farms. How hard is that? Roll out of bed. <laughs> you're in there. <laughs> there so you go. That was fun, and I, you know, and I, of course, I get to follow these advanced students around or they're actually in their exams now they're beyond the student level and doing their exams and they've got all these there's a rescue farm that supplied all these little tiny horses that um god knows who bred whom and all that you know we'd have to do blood tests i think to know who belongs to what families there but they're all just sweet and wild like little feral cats and running around and these girls are having so much fun i mean i went to dinner the other night with three of them and I was like, well, here's what we do. We get up in the morning and we talk about horses and then we get out there and we play with horses. And at the end of the day, we ride horses. It's horse camp. This is great. <laughs> so they're not too nervous. I think they're having a really good time. Oh, that's Till funny. Monty comes maybe. <laughs> well, yeah then, every, yeah, then everybody has to straighten up just a little bit. <laughs> They have to do their exam at the end of this, so they have to pay attention. But anyway, it's been fun to watch them. Re- I mean, talk about pure language of Equus. A wild horse has no other language. He, you know, they only know that we're predators and they don't want to be near us because they're neophobic. They're afraid of everything. And it's interesting to watch that gentling process happen and that trust start to build and um, fear on their parts. I don't see much fear in these gals' parts. They're really, it's all, all women in this course. Um, not by design. It's just our industry is taken over by women yeah. <laughs> pretty much, which yeah. is great. It is. It, it's great for the horses. I think they're, you know, they tend to be, um, horses know that there's testosterone versus, um, you know, I, I think the estrogen is not, um, doesn't guarantee us any, that we're good with horses, but I think testosterone probably just gives up a vibe of predator a little bit more. So I think we do have an advantage as women. We're empathetic and nurturing as well, but that doesn't guarantee anything either. We also have to get in our muscle memory about the language. So Yeah, yeah. So um, that makes get, gets me to thinking because mm-hmm. for the exams, you use what I what I would call clean slate horses, horses that are not broken to ride or lead or have their feet picked up. Um, That's you, true. As clean a slate as possible. Um, and I, I'm, I'm. This is a wild guess. Is that is one of the reasons you do that so that each candidate 
has what I would call a level playing field. It's not like, oh, well, you got such and such horse. He got chased around by a guy with a rake for six years. Of course, he's really hard to work with. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, yeah, you've been watching the road to the horse, so you know what that looks like where you're trying to sort of pair them up and make it fair, <laughs> too, which those are great. Those are great. That's hard to do. Um, yes, it, it is. And, and I suppose that there is, I, I'm not the head instructor over there at all, and I don't even know the thinking process on it, but I think the whole point is trying to, um, they do try to match the students with a horse that is safe enough for them. I'm not sure how Denise Heinlein is our, is our head instructor here right now from Germany. She's the master um, chef. She is. She cooks the the recipes up over there. And I think she's pretty fair about it. Now, Jamie tells me, Jamie Jennings is on the, the exam course right now, or whatever we're calling it. It's the advanced exams. And she um, she said she's been here like 10 times now, taking different courses and everything. And I hadn't thought about that. She's been to some night of inspiration, some other things where she's not hands-on. But she has a lot more exposure to watching all this language than some some other people might. We do have the Equus Online University, which should level the playing field too. You should have access to Monty 24-7. You know, they yeah. really, they are streaming. There's 500 lessons on there right now. So you really can get into his um, concepts and his psyche about horses. And But there's nothing like muscle memory. There's nothing like right. being out there yeah. in the pen. It's still horsemanship and you still need to go out and practice. So Absolutely. At this level, super high level. Yeah. For, for the average Joe, like me, who only has just the tiniest inkling of the understanding of the language of Equus, because I have not studied it like Jamie has. Is there a significant difference in how it is, for lack of a better word, spoken or how Mm. it is perceived by the horse with a horse who is a clean slate, a Mustang or a completely feral horse versus a horse who spent the past six years getting chased around a round pen with a rake? <laughs> yeah. Is yeah, there a difference right. there? Yeah, forks and yeah, yeah. all that stuff. That's a great question. Yeah, that's a great question. There is. I definitely think there is. And that's why the project horses that these students get, the advanced uh, courses full of project horses, um, they, it doesn't mean that you won't learn as much from a, a horse that's had bad experiences, either rescue, re, re, uh, hoarder, you know, situations and everything. So it's either neglect or abuse, abuse being the worst, I think, because Anything that has um, a horse that has endured pain at the hands of a human is definitely less trustworthy than a horse that was just abandoned in a field and was not, you know, didn't have any groceries. Uh, so it's that negative reaction to a predator. I mean, it's it's actually verification that a predator will eat you. So when we hurt them, yeah. you know, it, we're just yeah. affirming what they already believed in the first place. And so, yes, um, a horse that is a rescue that has been abused will definitely have m- many more scars and much more uh, lack of trust, you know, distrust of humans than another. Um, it's interesting too, about the language of Equus to, to, to speak to that purely, like, what is that? You know, what is it? Is it born in the DNA or is it something socialized amongst horses? Is there a difference between a wild horse, you know, a Mustang that grew up in Nevada versus a horse that grew up in a field, 
Well, yes, and yes, and yes, and yes, and all those. But, <laughs> um, but the um, the horse that's born in captivity or born domestically, which is you know most of our horses these days, they're acclimized, acclimated to to humans, mm-hmm. and and there you know so there's no big surprise or nervousness about has a human eaten them or not, you know, when they're babies. So it's interesting if if you if you could have, and here I've got a real life example actually. If you could have a horse that was born blind, remember their language is silent. Mm-hmm. A horse that's born blind, if he could get if he re- got his sight back, he regained his sight later, would he know his language? So, you know, that kind of tells you whether it's DNA. And of course there's there's yeah. DNA in there about they're definitely flight animals, you know, and all that stuff is survival. But there is part of the language that is actually learned in a social environment, mm-hmm. which tells us to leave, you know, the horses in social environments within their herd as much as possible. But there was a horse that uh, dad got wind of that was going to be taken to Colorado State University to have cataracts removed. And he's a few years old at this point. He was born blind because of these thick milky cataracts that were over his eyes and he was with his mother raised like you would any other given that he was blind but um and then dad said you know before you do this could you please um keep me informed of what's going on and I'd like to be up there when he's first healthy and brought you know back into a, a situation where I can work with him a little bit so they did and he didn't know his own language he had no concept about advance and retreat or anything like that. So it was really interesting that a lot of that language then that uh, the eyes on eyes and the crossing the body axis and keeping our fingers closed open. Well, if you open your palms, that means go away. So you could do that. He didn't know what that meant. You close your palms, you close your fingers, anything that looks like a claw kind of thing mm-hmm. and the horse would get would relax. Well, he didn't know any of that. He didn't have a clue. So, so it's interesting about the language. When those gals are out there working in their exams, the horse will teach you so much about your mistakes. You know, they'll if all of a sudden your eyes start snapping on them and you just forget to move with um, like you're in heavy oil. It's what mm-hmm. what the term that we like to use. You've seen all this in the pastures yourself, right? Yeah, you've played with all. You could take that conversation from there. Imagine that times a hundred. You know, that's what these wild horses are like. You you're playing with Scooter or Nigel out in the field just to see what they're. Yeah, um, they have. They have. They no longer have an innate fear of humans like a like a blank slate horse will. The blank slate horse doesn't have any experience right. to draw on to tell him that he shouldn't be afraid of this here predator. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So times a dad always says that. Monty Roberts, it always says that um, a horse has a flight mechanism uh, that's actually a deer has a flight mechanism that's 100 times what a horse is. But a wild horse has probably 100, you know, a wild horse like a Mustang has 100 times what our domestic horses are. Uh, One little curious thing that happens that we notice between the wild horse and the domestic horse, and I'm talking you know, like a, a yearling out of the fields or something. So one that's not trained or anything, but we're talking a domestic horse raised around humans. They, um, they whinny around here all the time, our domestic horses. If you bring in the Mustangs, when we adopt these, you know, three or four or five, what we do every year, they come in here and they're absolutely silent. Absolutely. They don't whinny. They don't scream to each other or anything. And that's because in their predatorial environment, that would mean death. (laughs) 
Yeah, I often think about that. Yeah, yeah. because yeah. I always associate whinnying with something that foals do in order to find mama. They kind of panic. Oh my God, where's mommy? And they whinny. That's true. That's true. They, I'm over here. I'm over but here. And when you have a horse that we're going off topic, so I'll, tr- I'll try not to do this too long. Um, yeah. Horses that are at the very far end of being buddy sour that horse that if you take the horse in the stall next to him away he melts down and turns into a puddle of mush and (laughs) screams his lungs out and he does it for six hours yeah Um, that always reminded me of the reaction you would have if you took the mare away from a three or four month old foal and i often wondered if horses that have that propensity and i've come across horses that just don't get over it you can take away the other horse for three days and they're still pacing and screaming in three days. Um, If those horses don't have the horse version of some kind of an arrested emotional development and the, the two horses I've only had ever had two horses that did this were raised in that classic um, competitive atmosphere where they had very, very little interaction with other horses. Yeah. You know, they went from mommy to take away. And then after that, you don't get to talk to other horses because you're a racehorse or a show horse and you don't Mm -hmm. get to have those reactions. And I often wonder if horses that are raised that way are more likely to be buddy sour than horses who are raised in a very. Yeah, um, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, and there's different different sensitivities in horses too i mean some we just went down to temecula and dad was in the master series down there with boyd martin the olympian and and so we took two horses there that we thought well one that boyd could do a join up with a really nice horse of my mother's and then another one um who is just kind of a dad's riding horse and just a, a quarter horse buddy horse for him but they actually don't spend any time together they're in different areas of the farm and it just the drive from here which is central california California to Southern California, four or five hours. They were so buddied up. <laughs> Best friends. Put them in different barns. It was ridiculous. And they were screaming to each other. And I mean, literally, they'd never interacted before. So, you know, some are more, and those horses are completely, I mean, they get lots of horse time and everything with other horses. So it's not like there's some crisis of personality in them. It's just that I don't know what it was. It was some chemistry between them. They got, you know, some sort, and they both travel a lot, you know, go to -hmm. shows um, separately. (laughs) So I I guess I don't know. They were sharing coffee on the way and they were best buddies from the, from the get go. There you go. Yeah. It could have been the LA freeways. Maybe it was like a traumatic thing. (laughs) Yeah. I've been on LA freeways. It is traumatic. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, we should get to our show. We have some wonderful people coming up here. We've got Catherine Burke, an equestrian photographer, and we got Bill Farish, a legend. I mean, that family, Lane's Inn Farm, uh, with Monty Roberts speaking about horses. Your horse is your partner in sport, in leisure, and just in life. To keep him at his peak performance and optimal health, a solid nutritional foundation is key. Ideally, horses are able to graze fresh, growing grasses, which most closely mimic their natural diet. But that may not always be possible, and we may need to supply some of those missing ingredients in today's diets and provide more functional foods. One component of a horse's diet that is often underfed are omega-3 fatty acids. While more prevalent in fresh forages, harvested forages are lower in omega-3 fatty acids due to their more advanced maturity. 
Obviously, grasses and legumes have to grow to a sufficient height in order to be harvested, while foraging patterns of horses show great preference for shorter, less mature plants. That's why modern horsemen and horsewomen trust Omega Horse Shine to provide a powerful, bountiful source of omega-3 fatty acids for their equine partners. Look for Omega Horse Shine from Omega Fields at your local tack and feed supplier, or you can find them online at omegafields.com. As much a storyteller as a photographer, Katherine Burke finds magic in the everyday. She gathers light, color, and texture to create memorable images. Inspiration comes from her lifelong love of horses and a desire to share their spirit, power, and grace, as well as the joy they bring to their guardians. Well, welcome, Katherine Burke. I'll use your stage name. How are you? <laughs> I'm great. Always nice to hear from you. So nice to hear from you too, Kate. And it's been too long since I've seen you. I know we meet at very auspicious places and it's always a lot of fun. Uh, but I would have said, who said odd places? Excuse me for interrupting auspicious. you. <laughs> auspicious. Auspicious <laughs> Grand rooms at the equine affair or grand fields out in the Santa Barbara County or, you know, very auspicious places. But, but it's always fun. It's always fun catching up with you and meeting with you. And I just wanted people to get to know you a little bit today. This is the first time we've had you on Horsemanship Radio, but it certainly won't be the last. And uh, we've got some big plans coming up in 2018 to be together. So I'm very excited about that. Yes. But yeah, aren't you? I'm, I'm very excited to have you as part of our symposium and festival. And But we'll tell I'm people. I'm very honored to have been invited. So I'm excited too. You will do such justice to it. So, but I wanted people to get to know you a little bit first too. So um, I've read some beautiful things about you. Some people have written some very nice articles and I want everybody to know that you're a horse girl at heart. And how far back does that go? Oh, uh, oh, a long way, a long way. My first, actually the first time I saw a horse was when I was about three years old in St. John, New Brunswick, where I where I started, uh, <laughs> there was a fellow who used to come around with a little black and white painted pony. Uh, it was a real horse, but it was a pony with a little Western saddle on it. And they'd put the neighborhood kids up on it and take their picture. Oh. And um, everybody had pictures of the, of themselves on ponies when they were three and four years old. <laughs> the same it was one. the thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, I know that you started working with horses, though, at age nine. Well, cleaning uh, stalls. Yes, I, uh, yeah, cleaning stalls. And I was sort of the go-to girl to catch the horses because I had developed a, a really strong bond with the horses that they were half Arabians that were um, in a barn in the neighborhood. And I just spent every waking minute at that barn and, and helped with um, preparing the winter sweet feed and cleaning tack and I got some riding lessons once in a while. I cleaned stalls and uh, the horses were just my friends and I just played around in the fields with them all day by myself, just me and the horses and I did that for about four years. So I was I was totally in love, of course, head over heels like anyone and that's where I started actually taking pictures because the horses inspired me. So mm -hmm. I had a little Instamatic camera with a little cube flash on it. Right. <laughs> I, would, I would take pictures of the horses with these little, oh gosh, I can't even remember what they would have looked like, but I just remember that that's where I started taking pictures. 
That's so cute. I mean, it's so cute that you say pictures too. I love that. A professional photographer who's had her work published all over the world doesn't say photography. You say pictures. (laughs) (laughs) It's just so cute. It is very systematic. They were snapshots. Believe me, they were snapshots. (laughs) Yeah. Well, what, what is it? What do you think? Can you wind back and think what was it about horses that, that drew them to you? And vice versa, drew you well, to them. I think the the most obvious is that they are gentle giants. And when you're a little girl, you're nine nine years old and probably about four and a half feet tall at that, and these huge animals are so gentle that you can maul them and brush them and give them treats and play with them in a field and they don't hurt you and they trust you. And that is so it's so empowering i think for a child especially but really for any woman i think women have a really strong affinity for horses and i think that is part of it that they empower us by being friends with us and being malleable and tractable and they allow us to work with them in such a way that we can I hate to say control, but we do. We control them, but they're willing partners. And uh, I think they're just a wonderful, powerful, beautiful animal. Mm -hmm. I I don't think you can make them. Yeah, I don't think you can make them do anything they don't want to do even. Right. So, yeah. So they trust you enough to be your willing partners. Yeah. Well, they, they're very trusting of you because you get into some very beautiful, um, scenes and shots and intimate moments with them. And I, I, you know, you remind me when I see a lot of your photography and I hope people will just stop this podcast right now and just go to your website and look look at the beautiful work too, and then come back and listen to this. But, um, they're almost Rubenesque, you know, there's, there's this big scope that you have to so many. Is there a breed of horse that you think cannot take a bad photo? An Andalusian. Yeah. Absolutely okay. cannot take a bad picture. <laughs> take a bad photo, right? No. All that mane and all that butt and everything. They're just well, beautiful. Just hair and muscles. A horse <laughs> with hair and, and muscle and presence, um, the one thing that I find I maybe don't care for in the Andalusian and the Lusitano, I love them, love them, but they don't have that huge expressive eye that an Arabian would have, or some of the warm bloods have beautiful eyes. And that's the only thing. Otherwise, when you're taking action pictures or photographs, (laughs) (laughs) the Andalusian and the Lusitano, they cannot be beat. They just are marvelous. And of course, you know, people will argue a, a warm blood that's being ridden beautifully in dressage, of course, is magic. But uh, for a Liberty horse, just a running wild that's going to capture everyone's heart, it's going to be the end illusion every yeah. time. Yeah, Unless you're I, a ear blubber. <laughs> oh, I, I, looking at your photos, yeah, I agree with you. So your subjects are pretty broad, though. I mean, some look like scenes out of Game of Thrones or like Lord of Rings or something. But, and, <laughs> but then I, I see vaqueros on Arabians and I see barrel racers on quarter horses. And um, it, mm-hmm. you, you, you don't stay to any one subject or even one breed. No, and I, I think that, that part of it is that a lot of these photos that I take are done in the Weisel workshops uh, with April Weisel, and she arranges the models and the horses. And so 
were given these subjects and beautiful opportunities in locations and costumes and just you can't go wrong they're just amazing shoots and then on the other hand, I have been shooting at the Calgary Stampede, which I'm I'm a, an English writer myself. I'm I'm uh, not a Western writer, but I do love cowboys, and so I, I did have a media pass at Calgary Stampede a couple of years ago, and I did did I had so much fun shooting the rodeo. Really is amazing, and energetic and inspiring um, in a in a photographic way because there's just so much vibrance to it. Oh my but, gosh. And, um, the, I and the colors that, and the costumes. And the colors. And, oh yes, yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. It's just fantastic. It's just uh, something that has to be seen to be appreciated in person, uh, seen in person. But mm-hmm. um, I think that the fact that I shoot everything and that I don't stick to one discipline, like I do, I do realize there are photographers who specialize in dressage or in rodeo or in horse racing and I don't specialize and I think it is probably a reflection of how I how I ride because I <laughs> I just like to have fun with my horse and I'm not in any strict discipline I don't I don't jump I don't do dressage I do a bit of schooling but I mostly just ride out in the open country with my horse and we just enjoy running, galloping, cantering, trotting, walking around in the countryside and through the woods and and just enjoying being together. And I think that because of that, because I'm not in my myself involved in any one discipline, mm-hmm. it opens up my appreciation and my my desire to shoot anything that yeah. involves a horse. That makes sense. That makes sense. So I saw on your website too um that you did a shoot with Sheila Varian. And I think a lot of listeners will know we've, we've interviewed mm-hmm. her before she passed and, um, she has such a, um, she's an icon in the Arabian horse industry, but you shot her as a Vaquero woman, which she considered herself. Uh, what mm-hmm. was that? What was that? How, how did that happen? How did that whole experience come about? Well, when I go to California, I usually always am attending a Visal workshop and April Visal had been friends with Sheila Varian for many years. And also uh, the people I stay with, whom you know as well, my friends Lee and Rick are good friends with Sheila, were good friends with Sheila. And so I had met her through them, but I also just by chance uh, was able to do photo shoots with her through the workshop. So I knew her on two different fronts and uh, it was just, it was, just loved going up there. I, have you been to her ranch? You must have Gosh, been it's been ranch, years. Do you know we grew up next to each, well, I was a, a baby, but um, we grew up in San Luis Obispo, so we we were very close to the Varians um, when right. I was very right. young. The yeah, whole family. But it's been years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I had also been at a cattle drive with her cousin Jack, oh, yeah. Jack Varian's ranch, mm-hmm. the B6 ranch. Yeah, I had B6. done a cattle drive with them. That's so, so fun. Everyone is sort of out re- related out there. Anyone yeah. <laughs> who's in horses seems to know everybody else. So we are, we just, especially in the San Inez Valley and the you know the those counties uh, up and down the central coast. Yeah, yeah, it's phenomenal. It's really, it's really, it's just so exciting to go out there because there are so many cross connections between all the different breeders, owners, trainers regular people but all the horse people 
and um, and people who like wine, of course. <laughs> yes, there's sort of a combination there too. Dogs, wine, horses, all goes together. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I always say, they'll say, where, where are you going when you go to California? I say, I go to horse and wine country. That's all yeah. I can <laughs> that's and, exactly and everybody knows where that is. is. It's pretty cool. Everybody knows where that is. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I, w- I would love for you to tell readers or listeners um, where where we first met. Um, that is all part of that story, too, and where you met Dad, Bonnie Roberts, um, on that, what was it, a spring day back in, I guess that would be 2009, I think, when we first 2007. met. 2007. Seven, okay. There you are. It's longer yeah. than that. I'll never forget. It was a Tuesday. <laughs> oh, you're Tuesday so funny. Morning. It's true. It's true. I can't forget it because it... It is, uh, as I think we were speaking of the other day, um, it was a turning point in my life. And um, I wanted to do this podcast because I wanted people to, to hear this story because it is such a, such a cool, serendipitous event that changed my life forever. One day out of many, many, many days that I had been alive, this was one day that changed the course of my life. And I think it's quite inspiring in that it would show people how easy it is to actually change your life with a simple decision. So I'll tell you how it happened. So I drive down the main drag through Santinez Valley, where I had driven back and forth many, many times and passed Flag is Up Farms, Monty Roberts Farm, um, the other people in the workshop with me who had been driving with me, had we had noticed that this was Monty Roberts' farm and we'd commented on several times, well, Monty really needs to meet us, <laughs> making jokes. And as I was driving by that morning, it was still very early, I noticed a sign on the gate that said, visitors welcome. And it was the first I had noticed this. And I said, visitors welcome? That means me. I'm going to go in and see this farm. That'll be a little excursion. So I come up the driveway and park, and there's a film crew in the yard. And I thought, well, if there's a film crew, Monty Roberts must be here. So I started (laughs) talking to the director, Austin Atkinson, and uh, I said, do you think he'd mind if I took his picture? He said, let's ask him. So Monty comes out, and I said, would you mind, sir, if I took your picture? Oh, no, you go right ahead, but i got to keep moving. I've got to keep working here. So they shot this segment, and I was taking pictures and just having fun, and and then Austin came over to me and he said, listen, you look like you know what you're doing. Would you like to do the still photography for this 13-part miniseries we're doing, this California segment? And I said, yeah, sure. So he asked me to do this shot, this shot, that shot, and I got all the shots he wanted. And 4 o'clock came and everyone was saying, well, I think we're done for the day. So I said, okay, I'll see you later. I'll, I'll, I'll email you and and you or and this is where I met you because you were there, of course, because you're, you're the manager and uh, you were so sweet. And uh, either you or Austin or both of you said, uh, well, Monty's going up tomorrow to the Madonna ranch to ride with the wild horses. Do you want to come up and shoot? And I said, well, yeah, sure. So eight o'clock the next morning, we're driving down the driveway and I'm on the phone to my mother saying, guess where I'm going, mom. I'm right behind Monty Roberts. And we're going up to the Madonna ranch. I think I nicknamed you my little angel at that point too, because you were just so sweet and you just were such a trooper. Sure. She's willing to go. She's got her camera. Here she comes. So that was a lot of fun. It's uh, really opened my life to a great extent. And, 
my world is much bigger now than it was before. And all because of that one day. Mm-hmm. Not to mention, of course, that I got to meet Monty Roberts and photograph him. And I've run into him a couple of times since then, of course, at Equine Affair with you. And I've been to the ranch after that at Flag is Up Farms with you and your mom, your wonderful mother, who's an amazing sculptress. Pat Another Robert. artist. There you are. Another yeah, artist, that's... fabulous mm-hmm. artist. So you're going to be our guest artist this May, too. We'll let people in on a bit of a secret um, that we're going to have a symposium and festival in May at the farm. And Kate, Catherine Burke, will be um, an artist in residence at that. And it'll be really fun. You know, your your life, you, you kind of live life one decision at a time, which I love about you. But you have so much mileage behind you now in the photographs. Um it's sounding like you live life like a line that I read about you one time that you you said that I never depend on my camera to make decisions for me. I always shoot in manual. And that mm-hmm. sounded like the decisions you were making about being on the farm and being out with the, the horses when you did. You were ready for that opportunity because you were prepared to be ready for mm-hmm. an opportunity. What does it mean that you always shoot in manual, though, for your camera? Well, uh- People who shoot um, SLRs, which is um, single lens reflex camera, whatever if it's what whatever it's, okay. <laughs> you know what I mean. It's a thirty-five millimeter camera that you can make adjustments on, and and it takes lenses. You can change the lenses, and that's basically what an SLR is. Now it's a DSLR, which is digital. But anyone who shoots like that, they know that we have certain priority settings that you can use to. Uh, you can just set the camera to say, I want every shot to be this speed and you're going to decide on what the exposure will be and, and um, so on and the depth of field. You're going to decide all that because I want to make sure no matter which direction I point this camera, I want the speed to stay at this speed. Or you can say, I want the camera to always shoot at this focal length and I don't care what the settings are otherwise. It can be a slow speed or a fast speed, doesn't matter. You're going to make the decisions. But if you want to really get a great photo, you have to control the camera and tell the camera, no, I want it to be this speed and I want it to be this f-stop and I want it to be this exposure. And if you tell the camera everything, then the camera can't make any decisions so that when you turn it into the sun, it doesn't suddenly say, oh, it's too bright. I'm going to have to darken everything down. I'm the one who decides if I want it to be dark or not because I make all my settings myself. That's what it means. It's more of a technical thing when I say I I don't let the camera make decisions. So this is just Mm -hmm. for your photography listeners who understand. No, I love that. I I love that. I think that's actually a good lesson for a lot of us who, who do a lot of things in technology on autopilot because we, we don't take the effort to actually learn all the, the foibles of, of your, yeah. If you're interested to know the basic, the very basic rule of a camera, it's that a camera really doesn't see anything in shades of gray. Everything is black and white to a camera. So when I say that, I mean it in more of a a figurative way. But in truth, they used to say when I started with, with on the Internet, when I had access to other people discussing photography in a great field of people discussing, they would say, when you go out to shoot a client, make sure you tell them not to wear a white shirt, especially Mm -hmm. if they have a black horse. What happens? Well, if you point 
the camera towards the white shirt, the camera will say, and this is because they're using these automatic settings. Mm -hmm. If you point the camera towards the white shirt, it will say, oh, that's very bright. I need to stop down the exposure. Then what happens is your horse is so dark, you Mm -hmm. can't see it. If you point it at the horse, the horse is black. And so the camera will say, oh, I need to brighten this shot because this is very dark. And so the white shirt will just be washed out, completely gone, and there will be no pixels at all. So there'll be no information there and it'll be blown out. Well, who wants to live like that? When you, yeah. <laughs> when you want to take the picture you want to take, you're going to have to tell the camera, you're, I'm, going to set, I'm going to tell you where I want this. And it's going to be somewhere in between dark and bright. It's going to be right in the middle so that the shirt is great and the horse is great. Mm-hmm. So you don't want the camera changing every time it, it hits on something that's bright or dark. It will switch and you don't want that to happen. So if you have it on manual, it does exactly what you tell it to do, no matter where you point it. I love a woman in control. That's perfect. That is a great <laughs> <That's> explanation. <laughs> I love to be in control. <laughs> As you should, because what you produce, we don't want to change anything. I have one crazy question for you because you are just such a Renaissance woman to me. If you if if you wanted to travel back in time, I'm picturing what do you want to really photograph? What is it your heart's desire? What what era would you want to photograph in? Well, I'm actually, I'd love if your listeners got in touch with me, if they have this for me. Um, I really want to photograph traditional side saddle women riding in Victorian dress, which is sort of an up and coming thing. It's coming back into vogue where women are picking up side saddle riding. And there are women in England, especially, and I believe in Virginia and um, and uh, Maryland, who are hunting in side saddle with Victorian dress, because that is the traditional dress with the long skirt and the veil over their face and a top hat. Very, very elegant. And I'm just dreaming of having a shoot with a woman going cross-country over the um, the shrubs and mm-hmm. the fencing in Victorian attire, side saddle. I think That's my dream. with that one. Oh, Jen, Jen, our producer, can can help you. Yes. Oh, wow. Well, you have to send me that information because I'd love to set that up for next year. Absolutely. And I agree with you. There is nothing more inspiring than traditionally attired hunt fields cruising across the countryside. Gives me goosebumps. I absolutely love it. Love it. Have either of you ladies seen Downton Abbey? (laughs) Of course. (laughs) I mean, Mary. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> Mary Fox hunts side saddle, doesn't she? Yes, in the er, in the first season there is early. A, there is yeah, a, yeah there's, a, there's a famous scene. Um, I think it's about the third episode where she is shown fox hunting, and of course she is side saddle. But uh, yes, there, and, and she's beautiful too. Yes, yeah, Mary Mary's beautiful. All right, we're gonna set this up. we'll get it. We'll get we're you gonna... set up, girl. Oh, I love it. Love it. Thank you. I'm well, glad good. We'll have to, that came we'll have up. To, that was a good question. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you had a great answer. It's it's a be, it's a beautiful thought. It really is, and I would love to see a Catherine Burke photo of just that. Mm-hmm. It could be fun. In fact, video. I think actually, I want to see him going over. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, this has been so fun, Kate. I really appreciate you um, taking out so much well, of your time too. You're very busy, and I know it's late there. You're calling from where? Where are we calling you? 
I'm in Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada, East Coast. My goodness. Yes, all the North, way. I'm northeast not... of Maine. A lot of people don't know where it is, but it's northeast of Maine, and it is just west of Nova Scotia. It It is so far east of here. You're in a time zone. I forgot there was an extra time zone. <laughs> it's a little there is bit an longer. extra time zone for sure. <laughs> it's Atlantic Standard Time, so we're an hour ahead of New York. Exactly, exactly. We're that much closer it. to England and Greenwich. And I love that you come out all the way to the West Coast every year. And I can't wait to see you in May. And I can't wait to have you back on to hear about your um, photo shoot with the um, side saddle fox hunting. Oh, then, you know, if, if that's going to be the case, I'm going to have to take notes. I will make <laughs> I will make notes for the next one after I do this shoot. Yeah, sure. Fine, you're fine. Jen, Jen uh, actually has some experience with the fox hunting, so you guys will oh. put you two together and uh, we'll, we'll get this done right. Woo-hoo. It'll be beautiful. Oh, there you wow. go. Perfect. All right. Well, Perfect. thank you so much for joining us. It's so much fun to have you on Horsemanship Radio, Kate, and we'll we'll be it talking to you real soon. Such an honor for me to be asked to um, to talk to your listeners and and thank you very much for listening to me. <laughs> that was you're, fun. You're great. You're great. Great stories. <laughs> thank you. All right. You're super. Thanks, Debbie. Thanks, Jen. Bye-bye. Hi, Carol Herter here, president of Cavallo, home of the world's most trusted and popular hoof boots. You know, one of the most interesting parts of what I do is the many horsey stories I get to hear. Most of them are really uplifting. Some are stories of challenges, and a few are downright sad. Recently, a wonderful woman took the time to approach us at a show to share a story about her horse who went down in quicksand. It started out as a really scary story. We were holding our breaths, waiting for the outcome, and it turned out wonderful. They winched the horse out relatively unscathed, albeit, you know, a little traumatized, and everyone standing around were super amazed that he still had his cavallo hoof boots on. Scary story with a good ending. Another testament to Cavallo. If you don't have a pair for your horse, it's time. Cavallos are easy to put on, easy to take off when you want to take them off, and they stay on. They stay on in all terrain. Cavallo, the world's most trusted hoof boots. Will Ferris Jr., Bill, has served nine years as the chairman of the board of the Breeders' Cup and is currently the general manager of Lane's Inn's Farm, which has the global stature that no other North American operation exceeds with services tailored for every aspect of the sport, breeding, auction representation, and bloodstock counseling too. Lane's End has an extraordinary record at the sales as the leading consigner on 26 occasions and as a seller of more than 365 stakes winners, including such champions as AP Indy, St. Liam, Rags to Riches, and Lemon Drop Kid. Well, welcome, Bill Farish and Monty Roberts. I am so excited to have you two on because we want to be flies on the wall and listen to two legends, really, in the industry of thoroughbred racing. And Bill, I'd love to start with you. The reason to be here today is to celebrate that uh, both you and your dad, William Farish, have decided to align with WOW, which is the Water Hay Oats Alliance. Am I right? That's correct, Debbie. We we've um... Uh, you know, been observing woe for a long time and, um, and agree with, with almost all, you know, and always have agreed with almost everything they were doing, but, uh, their support of, of 
what's going on in Washington right now is really what was the tipping point for us. And uh, we just have been so frustrated over the years with the lack of uniformity in our drug policies in this country. And um, and we've, we finally have a way, we think, to federally mandate it. Um, as you know, we, we've got 30 some different racing jurisdictions in this country and every state runs under different rules and, and allows different things with different withdrawal times and everything else. And it's just been very, very frustrating to get all the states on the same page. And uh, we finally have a way to do that. That's fantastic. Well, I know horse enthusiasts are sure happy to hear such strong uh, personalities now being involved before we go too far into uh, whoa, from your perspectives, I should give the listeners just a little background. Uh, the thumbnail version is that WOE stands for Water, Hay, Oats Alliance, uh, a grassroots movement of like-minded individuals, I'm reading this here, who support the passage of federal legislation to prohibit the use of performance-enhancing drugs in the sport of horse racing. The appointment, the appointment of an independent anti-doping program run by the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency will solve the problem of widespread drug use in American racing and put U.S. racing jurisdictions in step with international standards. I think that sets the tone for today's talk between you two. And this is where I'll bring Dad and Monty in and um, give us a little background on why you were you threw your weight behind Woe a few months ago too, Dad. I did indeed, uh, Debbie, and... Um I'm pleased that I did it, but it didn't come easy for me. Um, it took me a long time and a lot of investigation before I would go there, and I can give you reasons for that if you want to go into it in detail. Sure. Yeah. Well, give us a give us at least an overview. Yeah. Well, I, as you know, I led the world for 18 years in the production of young horses through two-year-old sales. Um, not the yearling sales, but the two-year-old sales, uh, uh, I had the, the, um, number one consignment for 18 years and I met a lot of veterinarians along the way and I listened to them and heard their spin on, uh, the use of Lasix, for instance, uh, in the process of getting horses to race without bleeding into the lungs. And I heard all of the uh, arguments for and against. I recognized the fact that a lot of the veterinarians and other people were saying, if you had a child that bled into his lungs when he was running around the schoolyard you'd, and you had a chance to give him something that keeps him from bleeding, you'd give it to him. Yeah. And the horse is the same way. And it sounded, it made sense to me. Um, you give it to him and help him. Um, the veterinarians were making a good deal of money selling this principle. And soon we had about 98% of the horses in the United States running on Lasix. And I asked the question a lot of times, uh, why would so many, all these horses can't be bleeding 98% of the horses. Well, I was told 86% of the horses bleed to one extent or another in the process of running a race. Mm -hmm. And I was told that by prominent, prominent veterinarians. 
who were making a good deal of money selling the substance. And um, I believed them. Yeah. And I won't name them, but some of them were very prominent people. And when I learned that, yes, it's true that you can microscopically find a dot of blood because that's how the thoroughbred is made up. And I, in Dubai, I was uh, addressed by a, a very good veterinarian who showed me a slide and, and introduced me to the fact that the thinner the alveolar sacs in the lung case itself, those are the little uh, cells of, of oxygen that are pushed into the blood, the thinner the walls are, the more oxygen that goes through to the bloodstream. And we breed the fastest to the fastest. And that means that those really good horses have a thin wall. Sure. And it, during the course of a race, those walls will leak a little bit. Um, but while 86% of them can be found to bleed slightly under the microscope, it's only about 5 or 6% who actually bleed enough to really be concerned about. Oh, I didn't know that until the last couple of years. And I went right back to that most prominent veterinarian and said, he was retired by then and, and um, off to another profession. But anyway, um, I said, what the hell were you telling me uh, a few years ago about 86% and this and that? He said, well, you know, Monty, we're, we're in business too. And it's true that 86% can identify blood. But actually, 5 or 6% are the only ones that really needed the LASIK. Well, then why was 98% of them receiving LASIK? Mm. Well, it seems as though it's a little difficult to find some other substances when they are uh, smudged over or protected by a coating of LASIK. Mm. makes it more difficult to test. And also, <laughs> we got paid. Uh, to give them the LASIK, mm -hmm. and uh, the trainer said, we told the trainers, give them LASIK and they won't bleed. Mm -hmm. And certain trainers found out that they could give some other performance-enhancing drugs that would be masked by oh, okay. the, um, the, uh, the LASIK. LASIK. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I said, well, I'll be doggone you guys. And he said, look, I don't want you to name me but mm -hmm. that's a fact, and I'm not proud of it. Um, mm -hmm. And I called Arthur Hancock in five minutes and said, I'm on. For the betterment of the breed, top to bottom, woe's the way to go. Yeah. Well, and, and for me, Debbie, Debbie and Monty, it's not, it's not just about Lasix. It, um, Lasix is certainly a, a major uh, issue in our country and you know we are the only major racing jurisdiction that runs on lasix mm -hmm. um and runs great graded races on lasix um so it's it is a troubling thing that we're that out of step with the rest of the world but um but it's all it's it's other drugs as well that we may or may not know are being used and uh, what this bill in washington is is pushing is um, it, a third party uh, that conducts all the testing 
in the country and uh, to the same standards at the same standard of laboratory, which is another problem that we have here. It's Mm -hmm. no consistency in our labs. Mm -hmm. Do you agree too, um, or as a team, do you agree that the genetic pool is weakened if we, we don't do something about this? Yeah, I, I, I don't, uh, you know, I've heard both sides of that. I've, I've heard that, uh, obviously, you know, any breeder would not want to, to breed a known bleeder to a known bleeder. Um, uh, that, that is something one would avoid, but I've also heard it takes really generations to breed, mm-hmm. to change the breed. So, um, you know, it, it's, but, but as a breeder, I def, you know, I don't, I, I don't think, uh, you know, we announce that horses are cribbers, but we don't announce that they're bleeders. Right. Um, and it, you know, it, it, uh, it, it's something that, that most breeders would not want to perpetuate for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, I, what I love about Lane's End, though, is that I'm seeing you talk about different things that are attributes of the thoroughbred. You have some, obviously, um, we've read some off in your intro, some of these amazing horses that you've had over generations now. And you talk a lot about, the girth, the size of the girth, the heart, the lung capacity, other things. So just touching on that subject alone, um, I think that's what you're you're leading people to look for. And I, I would love to ask both of you, really, uh, what you love to look for in a yearling or a two-year-old. You guys are legend. You've seen champions after champions over the generations. Um, Monty, Dad, I'll go to you, too. What do you look for? in a yearling that you believe makes greatness? Well, Debbie, as you probably know, I've, I've written extensively about the triangle, the relationship of the pelvic girdle to the shoulder, and uh, the fact that those two muscle masses are the largest in the horse's body, and they are responsible for getting the horse up the racetrack. And if they're not symmetrical and working in unison, uh, the horse is less likely to be an athlete and a winner. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I use the triangle a lot, but I, I just want to hearken back Debbie to that last statement a little bit, sure. because, um, you know, in the business of using drugs of any sort, Lasix mm-hmm. or otherwise, um, there's a lot of people that would say, if you can get me a fast horse, I want to breed thin wall to thin wall. I don't care if it bleeds or not. I'll fill them up with Lasix and, uh, run them if they can go fast. And uh, so you could change the genetic makeup, that's for sure. But you know, what I've concluded is I don't care whether it changes the genetic makeup or not. Uh, If they bleed, they bleed, and they should suffer the consequences of bleeding so that we breed to the strength of the horses involved as opposed to the weaknesses of the horses involved regardless of of how they run and if they're on water hay and oats then that's the horse genetically and physically mm. uh, psychologically and in every way so i don't i don't care if it changes them or it doesn't change them um if, it, if survival of the fittest means if it changes them uh we won't be using that horse mm-hmm. uh, if if you can't use LASIK, so, and the other That's drugs right. too, if, if, you know. So, um, yeah, I, I look for the, 
pelvic and uh, shoulder arrangement, skeletally speaking, uh, that's just an idiosyncrasy of mine. That's how it, how alleged came to be. Uh, but uh, ev- everybody has their preferences, um, leg alignment and all that. But Bill, I'll let you say what's your favorite well, I, uh, measurement. Yeah, well, Monty, I, I wanted to ask you a question along those lines. Uh, how much do you try to try to look at their mental state? Uh, an area you obviously known for for helping horses with, but do you do you uh, is that part of what you're looking at when you look at a yearling yeah. or, or a yearling? Sure. If I if I go to a yearling sale, Bill, and I see a horse that's cranky and um, out of sorts, if I see a horse that's extremely nervous, uh, one that runs a high pulse rate, uh, high adrenaline levels, wants to fuss with human beings a lot, I'm not going to like him as much as I do a horse that's amenable and and cooperative toward human beings. But in all honesty, Bill, be careful with that one because human beings affect that uh, idiosyncrasy uh, far more than uh, genetics do. And um, sometimes I can recall buying horses that were absolute uh, or or acquiring horses maybe from some other owner that were absolute killers as at the yearling sale and you get to handling them right and they have a better personality in there than we ever thought they did you know so i sure, think a and, lot and, of that has what yeah you're you're right and and a lot of it is the environment too they're 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 taken from a farm environment and taken to a sale and shown over and over and over again and they get tired and cranky and and uh that can that can show up at the sale when it wouldn't normally be there at home mm-hmm. that's true that's very true also uh, you know there are some people that would use growth hormones and altering mind altering substances when they take their yearlings in there overgrown and stuffed with all kinds of sugars and starches that uh, would alter the behavior of a horse. Um, so you, you do want to be careful. Uh, a- a- analyze cross-spectrum as much as you can. But, um, you know, when I b- bought Alleged, he, he, he looked like he was dying tomorrow, you know. Uh, Starving. <laughs> well, yeah, Lee Eaton had him in consignment, and that really threw me for a loop because... Lee Eaton produced horses that were in good shape and always looked good and everything. And I yeah. said to Lee, what is going Well, he said, Molly, this poor bugger, he, um, he suffered a uh, five-hour surgery to correct an umbilical hernia. And uh, he came out of the thing and he wouldn't eat. And he weighed, at, when I got him home, he weighed 712 pounds. Uh, against most of the yearlings I bought that year would average about 1,100 pounds. So he was just a rack of bones, but that allowed me to see his skeletal structure. (laughs) And uh, seven months later, I'm a genius, and I got $175,000 for him, uh, which is nice. But then I wasn't a genius because... 24 (laughs) months later, they syndicated him for $16 So. (laughs) 
Uh, and you, you were know. definitely on the right track. That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and and you know, I've got you on the line, Bill. What do you What do you all are Are you looking for in your in your whole operation? Because you got you guys really cover the gamut. Uh, you have stallions at breeding. You're you're really you've got the full package there at Lane's End. So, what do you What's your philosophies these days in looking for horses? Well, it depends on what we're what we're doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, if if we're uh, we have yearling um, colt packages that we do, racing packages that uh, we're looking for stallion prospects, uh, you know, for those racing partnerships, and uh, we also do filly partnerships. We tend to keep them separate. Um, some people like to go the filly route; it's a little less risky and. Um, and so we'll, we'll do that, uh, as well. And, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're probably looking for the same thing as Monty does, but, but a slightly different way. We, we really put a lot of emphasis on the walk, which, um, you know, I think exactly what Monty was saying. If, if you have the, the triangle, right, you're going to have the, the good walk, uh, go, goes right with that. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, it's, uh, what, what we're really looking for is, is fillies that can, you know, do, you know, hopefully win graded races and, and, um, either go to the broodmare band or be sold to dissolve that racing partnership or, um, in the Colts situation, obviously we're, we're, we're trying to make stallion prospects for, for lanes in. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. So uh, you've been Breeders' Cup chairman now. You were chairman through 2016, I think. Is that right? Are you still chairman? Uh, through Yes, uh, through uh, the summer of 17. So just, just the, last summer. Oh, okay. Down. Yeah. So, so hey, yeah. Debbie. Yes. yes let, me, let, me, let me throw um, uh, kind of a humorous question to Bill, okay? Good. Yes, please. Bill. <laughs> What's the most famous customer you've ever had at Lane's Inn Farm? Mm. <laughs> well, that's uh, that, that's probably hands down uh, would would be the queen. Ah, there you are. No, yeah, no. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> what name dropper? I think you. I think <laughs> you knew the the answer to that one, Monty. I knew the answer to that one because. I speak with her about it a lot, and she she remembers <laughs> Lanes Inn Farm fondly because she spent more time there than any other place in in Kentucky. Right, she stayed there five times. Stayed here five yeah. times. So. I'm Sorry, starting. Uh, I'm starting some of the bloodlines that she acquired through her customership uh, with Lanes Inn Farm, and it's it's fun for me to. Uh, to go back through those and, and, and to, uh, remember, uh, you know, how she bred this mare to that stallion and so forth and so on. So uh, I started all the babies just this last month in, um, in England. Oh, the month great. Of, uh, I didn't know that. Yeah. The month of October actually. And, uh, yeah, I've been starting all of her babies, uh, for nine years now. And, and, um, uh, she's she's doing progressively better all the time. She doesn't have that many mares, you know, and, and and it's not that large an operation. It sounds like it when they put it in the newspapers and stuff. But this lady has been such an influence for good in the world. It's just amazing. And 
to think that you had her as a customer and to think that she was instrumental, I think, in appointing your father as uh, ambassador to the UK um, it, it's just uh, c- quite an honor for me to know both sides of that coin. Yeah, she, she, I, I couldn't, I've got to echo everything you're saying. She, she is an amazing person and, and so knowledgeable in our sport. She's, uh, I always have to brush up before I. Yeah, that's right. Because, uh, <laughs> she's going to stump me on something almost every time. Yeah. When did you first and, meet her, Bill? Did you, did you meet her as a, as a young boy or? Well, I was, I was pretty young. I was, I guess I was still in college uh, the first time she came to Lane Den. And, um, you know, back then there were, there really weren't the kind of depth of, of high quality stallions in Europe that there are now. So she was really coming over here to scout stallion prospects to breed her mares to because, because there wasn't much over there at the time to breed to. And this was back in the, uh, mid eighties. Um, and she, she, it was a working trip for her. She, she was staying at the farm, but you know, every day was, was full of, uh, stops at different farms, looking at, at all the stallions, uh, in central Kentucky. Yeah. So, uh, it was, it was all business and she, she, you could tell she was totally in her element the high, the entire time. She, she just loved it. Yeah, if anybody doubted it, there you are. Yeah, I, I right. bet you guys were concerned about security and stuff, weren't you? There was, you know, there's always that concern, but um, you know, being in the middle of a farm it gives you a pretty good layer of of security. And and there was, uh, you know, the U.S. Secret Service was involved, and special branch uh, from over there was involved, and uh, it was uh, we never we never felt any any concern about it. That's good. So I know, I think dad might not know this, but you two know somebody equally, Andreas Jacobs. He wasn't he on your committee as part of the breeders cup. Uh, he was, yes. Yeah. Yeah. He's on the, I think he's still on the the big board, the larger breeders cup board. And, um, uh, has has been, uh, involved with the breeders cup for quite a while. Speaking of uh, European uh, breeders, and and uh, and Dad just got off his November. One. What year are you in now, Dad? Twenty seven or something? Of going over and starting all the Jakobs babies. I, I'm just just moving into the twenty seventh year mm-hmm. yeah. uh, of starting all their babies, and um, it all began in ninety one mm-hmm. uh, with Lomi Tufts. And mm-hmm. uh, there you yeah. are. Yeah, you know. I didn't so, realize that. I didn't realize you were you were doing that much overseas. That's great. Pretty much, yeah, it's hard to keep that's them about here. All I do <laughs> is that right? It's about it's about all I do. I I do far more overseas um, than I do here in California or or the United States, for that matter. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't allow me to get to Kentucky enough. I I really uh, miss <laughs> yeah, it. We're, we're trying but, to do um, that. Yeah. I left here September 15 and just got back day before yesterday. So, um, and that was England, Germany, Austria, and Hong Kong. So yeah, they keep me busy. They, wow, yeah, great. he signs up for it, Bill. So <laughs> one thing I wanted, I wanted to do too is, um, finishing up on the, whoa, or the water, Hay Oats Alliance too. I, I got to feeling mm-hmm. that 
others who hear this and are hearing what Woe is doing out there, Stacey Hancock has been so huge in beating this drum and getting it going. Um, what can people do? What are others that feel the same way? What are they doing and what can people do listening to this? Well, first of all, they can join Woe. It's, it's free to, to join. Um, and you can, uh, there's uh, over 1500 members, I believe in, in the, the grassroots movement. Um, and, and that's, that's the first thing they, they can do. The second thing they can do if, if they agree with this federal path we're taking on, on, uh, medication is they can call their representatives and, and urge them to support, uh, this bill because it's not easy to get things passed in Washington. It's very easy to keep things from getting passed, but but it's, mm. it's it's tough to get the legislation passed, and and uh, I really feel like this this bill is is gaining momentum. Great. Okay. Well, good. We'll put a link in there in the show notes so people can uh, do a little more homework if they need to, or just get on board. I think there's enough heavyweights like you all behind it now to to well, I can get echo, some critical I can mouths. echo the, I can echo those sentiments of of Bill. And look what we've been through with the Tennessee walking horses and, and can't get legislation to stop some of the most god-awful treatment um, on the face of this earth. So, um, yeah, it's hard to get things through and it's easy to get things stopped. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, thank sure. you both. Thank you both for lending your weight your your accomplishments and everything behind Woe. And I'm sure Stacy is super thankful and I know that horse lovers, horse enthusiasts are super help, super happy about this. Uh, you know, this really helps the thoroughbred industry, I think, who sometimes from outside looking in believe that that the powers that be don't think of the horse. And this is all about the horse. So I love what you're both doing. And uh, I appreciate you sharing a little bit of your story. And I'd love to have you back, too, to talk about some milestones that that Woe is making and some sticking spots if we can push them through to help and keep it going. Well, you got I'd me. I'd be happy to do that. Got me yeah. too. Whisper the language of the herd. Listen, you don't have to say a word. It's time for Jamie Jennings to fetch an email from Monty Roberts' inbox and share a morsel of Monty's wisdom in a little segment we like to call Ask Monty. Leave this world a better place in the magic in the language of Dear Monty, I rode and owned ponies as a child, but gave up in my teens to study and socialize. I'd like to take up riding again at 67, but I am so very nervous when riding. I've been told that Icelandic courses have a wonderful disposition for the senior rider. I would be grateful for any advice you are able to give me as I enjoy horses so much and want a positive experience. Monty's answer. I think every breed has individuals that fall into the category of being safe and bomb-proof. Having said that, every breed also has its share of challenging individuals that might be less than safe and reliable. The Icelandic horses that I have worked with certainly have the capacity to become gentle, steady, and sensible. The gait of the Icelandic is fine for a beginner rider. They're smooth and comfortable when properly trained. I have now worked with probably something over 500 Icelandic horses. On this basics, basis of experience, I 
I feel qualified to express the opinion that with proper schooling, the Icelandic can become a very good choice for a horse person in their senior years. The gait of the Icelandic is called the Tolt and is similar to that of several other breeds, the Walking Horse, the Missouri Foxtrotter, the Rocky Mountain Horse, and of course the Peruvian Paso and the Paso Fino, to name a few. Without personal experience, I have it from reliable sources that the Tolt and other gates of this kind offer a ride that is smooth, comfortable, and level with the ground. It is said that you can take a glass of wine with you and never spill a drop. These folks go on to tell me that the Tolt is much less likely to cause a rider to be muscle sore from the experience. The most important piece of advice that I can give you is whatever horse you choose should be a safe individual no matter what breed it is. Color, breed, or other aesthetic virtues should be way down lower on your list of priorities than safety. The second consideration should be health and soundness. Then we go on through a list of about 20 important aspects in selecting an appropriate horse. It is crucial that you get this decision right as it will affect your relationship with the horse and your own safety and enjoyment for a long period of time. For more of these insights into good horsemanship, go to www.montyroberts.com and click on the orange banner that says, Get Free Horse Tips. Hi, I'm Monty Roberts, and I'm dedicated to training horses without pain. You can learn to do it too on my Equus Online University. Western, English, the beginner, or the advanced rider, it doesn't matter. You can connect with other students online too on our forum, and there's a new lesson every week. It's a lifetime of learning for you on my Equus Online University at MontyRoberts.com. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Where in the world is Monty Roberts? Monty is looking forward to meeting some new friends, two-legged and four-legged. In England, March 3, he's going to be at Myers Co. College. March 7, he'll be at Hadlow College. March 17th, this is a favorite, The Grange with special guest Martin Clunes. And then March 24, he hops over to the uh, Ireland little island over there. What do they call that? The Irish Island. And uh, that's the March 24th will be near Dublin. Look on the calendar for that. And then April 21, he's back here in California at Thousand Oaks. It is the continuation of that master series that we spoke of with Boyd Martin. It's called the West Coast Dressage Convention. And uh, that's right in Central California. May 23 and 24, we are really excited about something we're calling the movement. It's part symposium and part festival, and we'll have certified instructors from all over the world meeting there to help demonstrate, but we're calling it Demonstrations, Discoveries, and Pathways. And then May 25th to 27, we have the Horse Sense and Healing here in the California location of Flag is Up Farms. And then July 23 through August 3 is a Gentling Wild Horses course here at the farm. And then August 6 through 10 is our annual Monty's Special Training. And if you didn't get all that committed to memory, you can find all that and so much more at the website MontyRoberts.com or you can give somebody a call right there at Flag is Up Farm who will answer the phone and be kind and helpful. And the phone number there is 805-688-6288. And for details about today's show, go to horsemanshipradio.com where you'll find links, photos, and more information about today's guests. And we love your feedback. It helps us make the show better, gives us clever ideas to talk about things on the show. So go to Facebook, 
type in Monty Roberts and click on it. It's the one with the little blue check because it's the official one. And follow Monty Roberts online. Or if you're a tweeter, you can follow him on Twitter. And his handle is Monty underscore Roberts. Now, once you've done all that, make sure that you have all of your favorite horse radio network shows with you wherever you go by downloading the free horse radio network app for your iPhone or your Android. Just go to your app store and type in Horse Radio Network and download it. It's quick, it's free, and it's easy. Or you can listen via iTunes or use your favorite podcatcher. How do you listen, Debbie? Yeah, I actually go right to your your app. app. You use the app. Mm -hmm. That's the easiest way to do it. Yep, and I get to see all the other shows because I, you know, I have to kind of remember, Kai, you have so many shows. Like, what do I want to listen to in this cart ride? So, yeah. Yeah, anybody in California should be listening to podcasts. (laughs) <laughs> oh, so true with all that traffic. Sorry. <laughs> it's true. And many thanks to our sponsors too. That's Omega Fields, Cavallo Horse and Rider, and MontyRobertsUniversity.com. Be sure to visit all the other great shows too on the that I spoke about on the app on the Horse Radio Network at www.horseradionetwork.com. Until next time, have many happy horse hours.